two. All right, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, everybody. I am extremely honored, humbled, and grateful that Mr. John Russell, and of course, in addition to uh, Riel here, as all of you uh, on the show know uh, Riel at this point, hopefully, uh, but Mr. Russell is here to join us today. Now, before we uh, introduce Mr. Russell, I would just like to give a quick little um, overview and uh, background about him, uh, mainly because I have to say I'm not only extremely impressed with a lot of the work that I, uh, or the the, the interviews that I've been listening to, uh, to him speak about leading up to this. But without further ado, Mr. John Russell has been a professional psychic for about 50 years, internationally known. He has provided psychic readings for clients in over 40 countries. Uh, Mr. Russell has filmed a TV pilot for the History Channel in which he psychically explored the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. For over 15 years, he's been a popular featured guest heard worldwide on many radio shows and podcasts. Over the last year and a half alone, uh, Mr. Russell has been interviewed over 100 times, including appearances on Coast to Coast AM with George Nury, The Unexplained with Howard Hughes, Fate Magazine Radio with Kat Hobson, Beyond Reality with J.V. Johnson, Darkness Radio with Tim Dennis, uh, Shifting the Paradigm with Christina Gomez. And for those on uh, our side of the show, you'll know that uh, Christina came on the show, I think, um, as of the day we're recording this, a week and a half, two weeks ago, uh, in addition to uh, the Unidentified Celebrity View and many, many more. And one thing that I find absolutely intriguing, and I mean this in a genuinely good faith way, is that he's also been an avid uh, motorcyclist for over 50 years. And so when he's not chasing ghosts around the country on his motorcycle, he enjoys painting, reading, making photographs, uh, gardening, uh, target shooting, and fancies himself a fair chess player. So without further ado, Mr. Russell, thank you so very much. And how are you today? I'm great, Dave. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. I'm happy to be here. Riel, nice to be here with you, and we're going to have a good time today. Absolutely, absolutely. And Riel, did you just want to say hello to the audience as well? Sure, yeah. Hey, everybody. Super excited for the conversation. I've been listening to uh, John the past couple of days, and uh, yeah, as Dave said, super enlightening. I resonate a lot with what he's saying, so really excited to uh, just ask some questions and have a fluid conversation. Awesome. So I wanted to jump in with a particular question that um, I, I must be honest, sir, I was listening to one of your interviews, and I, it just could not leave my head, but in a good way. And you had said that science, at least on the human academian level is not there yet, and is not even nearly close, please forgive me if I'm uh, taking words out of context, but is not nearly as close to the spiritual understanding of what's going on. And in my humble opinion, you hit the nail on the head when you said, okay, if someone has an experience, regardless of what it is, uh, good, bad, you name it, a lot of people, they're so, after the experience is over, they're so focused on, oh my gosh, what just happened to me, but they don't think about, okay, we've established that there is something, there's a there there, right? And also, but a lot of people don't think about what's the intent behind this experience? Where's it coming from? What's the goal? Is it is intended to deliver a message to convey something to you that maybe you should not do in your own personal life? Things like this. Now, is there anything that you can provide insight on pertaining to, uh, dare I say, for lack of a better term, a um, uh, maybe a, a control mechanism that these beings have to enter our realm and to sort of convey a message and then leave, if you will. Well, that's that's the whole thing is uh, in paranormal investigations, uh, science is so woefully far behind the paranormal and trying to explain the paranormal. 
because it's exactly like we've discussed. Uh, you, can, uh, you can take a REM pod or you can take a video camera or you can take a voice recorder and go on a paranormal investigation and you might get some EVP electronic voice phenomenon. Uh, you might get something on the camera. You might get the REM pod activated and go off a few times. And it may happen in response to a request or something. But typically, uh, those physical manifestations are fairly short-lived if they occur at all. And then you're left with the question of who set the REM pod off? Who was speaking in the EVP? Uh, what message were they trying to communicate? Who were they trying to get through to? Why are they here? Who is the person or the spirit or the entity that's there? Are they there in a long-term manner, in a short-term manner? Are they passing through? Did they come in response to the, the investigation and a request from someone there? Uh, do they have a history with the property? So there's all these questions that, that uh, we have to answer if we have a, a good, true paranormal investigation. And a good psychic, a reputable psychic, a true reliable psychic can connect with those spirits and get that interaction, get that communication with them where physical devices can't, where the REM pod can't, where EVP can't, where uh, cameras can't, and so on and so forth. So the best paranormal investigation utilizes both techniques. Uh, that's not to denigrate science, but it's just saying that Science is so woefully far behind in connecting with the other side like a good psychic can do. Um, it's like watching Skinwalker Ranch, which is really fascinating. And they're, they're finally catching uh, on camera during all of these seasons, they're catching on camera some phenomenal paranormal manifestations. But again, their question is who's doing it and why? They don't have that yet. And I think what they have to do is like when they had the rabbi out there, he did the ritual, open the portal. They captured that on camera that indeed the portal did open. I think what they have to do is uh, they have to interact more with shamans, with like people like the rabbi, with psychics, good reputable psychics, and have them out there to, uh, once these manifestations occur, to try and connect with who and what is manifesting on the property and for what reason. And then I think that we have to come to the realization that uh, most of these mechanisms, even to a psychic such as myself, is unknown. Uh, you know, I get this information from the other side by what exact method, I don't know. I know that it's accurate. I know that it works. I know it's been validated for 50 years of my life that when I go on a paranormal investigation and I pick up things about an area, people are able to, to validate and confirm that the information I'm receiving is correct. I know that when I do readings for my clients, make predictions for my clients, they've told me over the years that my accuracy rating and my predictions for the future is 80 to 90% accurate. What mechanism that is exactly that that occurs by I don't know, and I'm not real sure that anybody does. There's a lot of theories out there, but you know, we don't have a lot of things we can hang our hats on. It's just like one interview that I was on, we were talking about EVP, electronic voice phenomena, and we were discussing the fact that they have to have some type of noise, apparently, to communicate. Well, noise is a frequency, but within that noise, we can't find the frequency that the voices use to communicate with us through EVP. 
And one of the hosts that was on the program is a professional musician. And he said, John, he said, I can take any piece of music, any sound, any piece of audio, and I can manipulate it, do anything in the world that I want to with it uh, on a professional level. But he said, I load these EVP voices and I search for the frequency that they're on and I can't find it. So this is a problem with a lot of our paranormal research. We know these things occur. We know they're real. We know they can be helpful. We know they can be life-saving. Uh, I've experienced that many times. We know they can help guide us to a better life. We know that there are these, uh, to our eye, invisible entities out there, beings, ghosts, nature spirits, all these other things. But the method of communication is most times pretty sporadic. And when you go and, and utilize, uh, try and utilize scientific principles, science alone fails for that simple reason is that they get something, but they don't know what they've got. And so there has to be a marriage between science and the paranormal for us to make this advancement. The problem is a lot of people in the scientific community are super skeptical of the paranormal and of psychics. And um, a lot of psychics are reluctant to work with uh, science because there has been so much denigration of psychics and so many, you know, like the amazing Randy, he had his million dollar challenge and uh, just tore psychics up left and right and, and nobody would do it. I had a a guy that's uh, somewhat of a skeptic asked me on a podcast in the chat one time. He said, hey, why don't you take this current challenge or this? Apparently, there's another challenge going around. Well, it's pretty much useless because you can't make a believer out of these people that are determined to be non-believers. And uh, one example of that, I'm getting off course here a little bit, but one example of that was uh, when Randy was alive, I saw a special, a documentary that he shot. And in the documentary, he was testing these various psychics. And this one psychic said that he could tell him something about some object that he had in his home or whatever. So Randy picked this object out. Sorry, he sir, said this I, came I from sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Just for the audience to clarify, uh, Mr. Randy, just to clarify, um, you said Randy. I just wanted to clarify who that was for the audience. Yeah, the, for people that don't know, the amazing Randy, he was a professional magician. And he turned into the biggest skeptic on the planet. And like the, the famed psychic Uri Giller, uh, Randy made it his life's mission to ruin Uri Giller and of course couldn't. So anyways, Randy set about to prove that there was absolutely nothing to any psychic thing, to any psychic, to any of the paranormal or anything else. And so in this documentary, he had this psychic and he chose this object that Randy said, I I know the exact history of this object, where it came from. It's very obscure. I believe he said that most people may not even know I have it. And so he said, if this psychic can tell me anything about this object, it'll really be phenomenal. So he gives it to the psychic and the psychic says, oh, this object is a gift. Randy says, okay, not doesn't take anything to, to figure that out. And he says, this came from a male friend of yours and it he lives in, I think the guy lived out of the country or something like that, or found a thing out of country and send it to Randy or whatever. So he starts telling him all this. Randy acknowledges in his own documentary that the psychic's batting a thousand because yes, this male friend of his got it and sent it to him and it came from here and blah, 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 and all this. And he's telling him all these things. And then he says to Randy, he says, this friend of yours, he said, there's something unusual about his neck, around his neck. And he didn't say it was a clerical collar. He said, it reminds me of a clerical collar because there's something up here around his neck. 
And so Randy said, no, uh, that's wrong. It's not a clerical collar. It's not anything like that. Well, he didn't say it was. He said it reminded him of. And come to find out, Randy's friend had a predilection for wearing turtleneck sweaters. So there was something up around the neck, and it reminded this guy of a collar. Wow. So Randy says, I, he, he didn't allow that description, which was, was totally bogus in, in Randy's uh, going about it to begin with. And so Randy says, in my view, if one thing's wrong, everything's wrong. So all the 100% accuracy that Randy had credited the guy with up to that point, he just blew out of the water and said, nope, the guy's just as phony as the rest because he missed that thing. So I was uh, on a radio show and uh, the guy called me one day and he said, John, you'll never guess who I'm, I've got as a guest. I said, who? And he said, Randy. I said, oh my God. He said, are you available that day to, to call in to be there? And I said, no, I'm, I'm I'm booked solid and I can't, can't be there. And he said, well, what would you have me ask him? And I said, well, ask him this, ask him about how can this guy be a hundred percent accurate? And then uh, Randy misinterprets deliberately. One thing the guy says and counts everything wrong. How can that be right? And so he did. So he asked the guy and I didn't get to listen to the show or anything. So he called me back and told me that he, you know, talked to Randy and asked him that. And so um, Randy said, well, this is all set up beforehand. It's my rules and I determine it. And I say, if one thing is wrong and I decide what's wrong, then it's all wrong. Kind of like, like a, kind of know, like that's, a... that's not skepticism. That's just, hey, no matter how good you are, how much you get right, I'm going to shoot you down. So there's nothing like more like dogmatism than anything. Yeah. So that's that's what a lot a lot of what we face too, uh, trying to get into the scientific community and work with them. Although there have been good examples of that. Look at Stanford Research Institute. And they had Uri Geller and they had uh, uh, the other famous guy. I can't think of his name right off the top of my head. And they had all these people out there and they conducted uh, these experiments. Ingo that, Swan. Yeah, Ingo Swan. Yep. Um, and others. And they proved that these things were valid and that they did occur and that they did work. And I think as time goes by, if science would be more open and more willing to be uh, you know, to say, okay, what do we have to do to coax this thing out of hiding and to make it more reliable and to make it more, you know, uh, trustworthy or more verifiable or more repeatable or whatever. Now, with my readings, uh, my readings are always accurate, always easy to do, always verifiable, always work. With the paranormal manifestations I've experienced, and I've experienced over a thousand physical manifestations in my lifetime. And a lot of times other people have seen them, we've recorded them, we've caught them on film, we've caught them on audio. But with those, um, it's not as uh, repeatable or demonstrable as we would want it to be. There are certain things over the years that I have been able to do. For example, I've been able to transmit healing energy that's been effective to one degree or another uh, two people, and I can do that fairly repeatedly, fairly, fairly demonstrably, fairly reliably. Uh, but other things, other physical manifestations, and in particular, when you go on paranormal investigations, you may want a certain thing to occur or a certain um, being or entity to come through or person to come through or demonstrate themselves in a certain way, and they may or may not do that. And so it's, it's that lack of repeatability 
that uh, that gets people that that gets people on edge and that you know puts the scientific community off and then make psychics like me frustrated <laughs> it's like you know guys hey we need this right now you know do this thing right well, i have to say with all of that uh anytime that i have the chips have really been down and i've been in a situation where my life was literally at risk the other side has saved me literally and so wow uh, i mean you know it's <laughs> interesting because i want to first off thank you so much for for that response, sir, because there, there's often times where, uh, you know, we have guests and it's not so much of a, um, a a lengthy response. And I appreciate your candor to be as open as you are, if you will. Now, Absolutely. speaking speaking of which, pertaining to the academic community, I was taking some notes as you were speaking on my screen here, and you you speak of this um you speak of this necessity for there to be more of a marriage between, uh, you know, the psychic community and, and the scientific community. And I wonder, without getting too um, conspiratorial or anything like this, if you will, um, do you feel there's been a, um, because I think this goes without saying, there's been a, uh, what I've coined a deliberate divorce, if you will, uh, between the psychic community and scientific community, not because of the lack of evidence, but because of the insurmountable um, uh, amount of evidence that's been suppressed, if you will. Um, again, just for the sake of the audience, we're simply exploring ideas. But do you, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. I know that uh, Uri Geller has uh, supported your work and things like this and what you do and, and all of that, right? And um, I wonder, do you feel there are maybe perhaps certain gatekeepers within the scientific community that know, listen, this is real, but uh, there's, uh, due to politics, due to, you know, power structures, they don't want this to come out. Because again, as we've spoken about on the show, uh, if you bring out things like free energy and, and what have you, there goes right. big oil overnight, not even within an hour, within a second, there goes big oil, there goes, yeah. you know, all these, there goes, um you know, uh, nuclear, uh, uh, countries having to rely on other, you know, nations for power, if you will, and all of this. Do you see, uh, and because you've been around for so long doing this, which I'm very grateful for, do you see deliberate divorce, dare I say, I, I want to be careful using the word conspiratorial, but a, a deliberate divorce within well, the- let's, let's use the word conspiratorial. Oh, <laughs> sure, sure. I think it is. Yeah, there is a deliberate divorce there. Uh, between the the academic and the scientific and and the spiritual communities, and there are power structures in place within the religious and spiritual communities that want to keep control of things, want to have things done a certain way, follow certain dogma, follow certain tradition, follow certain rituals, so on and so forth. So we have a, a lot of problem out there in getting to the truth. Um, one of the things that always inspired me since I was a kid of around 11 when I started doing paranormal research, paranormal investigation, and reading and studying everything I could get my hand on was what was true and what wasn't, what worked and what didn't. And even in the scientific realm, there's dogma uh, and unworkable theory. And in the religious and spiritual realms, it's, it's rife, it's rampant. And so what I wanted to do was wade through all of that. I knew that there was reality out there because these physical manifestations started when I was about six years old, five or six years old. And so I knew they were real. I knew the paranormal realm was real. I knew the psychic realm was real. But as I began to read and study and question people and ask people and try and understand my gift and try and get better and try and train my gift, 
I became aware that there was all this ritual and dogma and nonsense and superstition out there, basically. And a lot of things that did not work, that weren't workable. And if you traced it back, it went back to somebody's writing and they wrote about something that they read and it was just basically passed down hearsay over and over and over again. And I wanted to strip all of that away and get to what worked and what was functional and what was practical. And the problem in trying to do that now is that people still want to adhere to the dogma, the, the tradition, the ritual, the superstition. They don't want to divorce themselves from that because somehow it's comforting or somehow they think they'll uh, piss off some god or a being or whatever, or they'll hurt somebody's feelings if they say, well, no, I'm not going to believe that way anymore. Do like That's like one client said to me one time, he was, he was an Indian client calling from India. And he said, John, he said, I know my religion does not work, but yet I'm scared to death to leave it. I'm reluctant to get away from it. Why? And I said, well, for the same reason that all of us are that way, we've been conditioned since kids that there is a being beings, a God, gods, whatever, that oversee our affairs. And this is the way that we have to interact with them specifically through this religion. And if we don't do that, we're gonna piss them off. We're gonna be in danger of hellfire, separation, isolation, you know, whatever. And that isn't the case. I mean, it's real easy to disprove the world's religions. And like most people, if they're being honest with you, will say, hey, I know my religion doesn't work. Um, but, you know, they're, they're scared to leave that, scared to get rid of, okay, if this doesn't work, what does? If I, if I divorce myself from this, what am I left with? And so that's why it takes some courage in going out and examining these things and not being afraid to call a spade a spade and say, hey, this works, this doesn't, so on and so forth. But, you know, the, conspira the conspiratorial aspect, I think, is very, very real uh, because you look at, well, I'll give you one example. Uh, we finally received that little piddling government report that did acknowledge that UFOs are real and that they are physical objects and that they're a threat to national security. There have been near misses with our our pilots and with airlines, so on and on and so on and so forth. But then you get, well, we don't understand what's going on and we don't have the technology to, to capture what we need to capture and we need more funding and we need to form a new organization to, to dedicate themselves to this. That's the biggest bunch of hooey on the planet and I can tell you why. I don't just speculate that it is. I can tell you why, and I can provide concrete examples. Uh, for one thing, I know someone that has a connection with someone in the military community uh, that is 100% reliable, uh, of course, which I, I can't say, but I know that the connection is real, that it's 100% reliable, and they say that pilots have 4K high-res photographs of these things 50 feet off their wings, okay? Um, for us to say in this day and age that our technology isn't capable of capturing and or understanding these things, let me refer you to a documentary that I watched with my own eyes several years back in which one of our former CIA heads was talking about technology 
And the SR-71 Blackbird, which was our premier spy plane at the time, for those that don't know, look it up. The SR-71 Blackbird flew in subspace. It flew so high. And it flew at speeds. A, a bullet from a plane couldn't catch it. A plane couldn't catch it. A missile couldn't catch it. A rocket couldn't catch it. Nothing could shoot it down. It was the fastest plane on the planet. It could outrun anything that there was, including bullets fired at it from a plane or a missile or a rocket fired at it from a plane. That's how fast it was. So the CIA head said during the height of the Blackbird era, if you took two golf balls and put them a foot apart on a putting green, and the SR-71 flew over at speed in subspace and took a photograph, when you developed the film, you could clearly read which golf ball was a Titleist and which one was a McGregor. And he said at the time, that's decades old technology, imagine what we can do now, okay? So it's ludicrous for our government to say, well, we, we just don't have the technology in place to figure this out. That's crazy, it's insane, it's ludicrous. In light of that statement and, and several other things that I've seen in, in documentaries over the years. So of course we do. Now, if we have the technological capability, which we have to have, um, how ludicrous is it to say that in this vast espionage machine that is the US government alone, with all of the alphabet agencies that we have that we know of, and probably a bunch that we don't know of, how ludicrous is it to say, well, we, we don't know who they are, we don't know what they are, we don't know what's going on. That, that just is beyond my ability to comprehend or conceive or imagine that in this age of technology and espionage that we have, we don't know what's going on. There has got to be somewhere in the bowels of the government or the military or both or science or whatever, somewhere there has to be somebody that knows where these craft are coming from, who's piloting them, what their purpose, what their intent is. It's ludicrous to think otherwise. Forgive me, forgive me, Mr. Russell, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I, I gather, and please tell me if I'm incorrect, I gather over your, your course of, of your lifetime doing this, you've spoken with, to and with some very serious high-level government people, and um, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I, I gather in the most respectful way possible, you, you know more than you're letting on, and I say this because you're, going, you're following a path, sir, uh, with, your, with your, answer, your gracious answer that I've, I, I've found in my own research as well. I think I... I I have an idea of the individuals pertaining to the SR-71 and all of this, and I could not agree with you more, but from even a taxpayer perspective, we're paying all these billions every year into the, the military industrial complex, and we have no idea what's happening. I mean, this is right. ludicrous. This is ludicrous. It is. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. And, you know, there are people out there, if you read the book The Day After Roswell, for example, and, uh, and people that have claimed to witness this technology firsthand, seen these craft firsthand, seen alien beings firsthand, whatever they are, whether they're AI or whether they're some other type of biological life form, whatever they are, and claim to have seen this and experienced this firsthand. And there are so many people in the military like that, that have made these claims that there has to be something to it. And there has to be someone that knows what's going on. One of the things that I've encountered over the years is the fact that 
Uh, I had a, a friend of mine who's now deceased and he was one of my absolute best friends on the planet. And he was a, a major, a retired major in the Air Force and he had been a pilot and he had done some work for the NSA and uh, had uh, top secret clearances and, and all types of things. And the people that do that take their oath of secrecy so seriously that if they had had conversations with an alien being, I think some of these people would not reveal that because they take their oath of secrecy so seriously. And he did. And he would tell me things that were not classified where he was not breaking his oath of secrecy, but they were pretty astonishing. And he would start on a conversation with me and go, oh, I'm not gonna go any farther, farther forget I said that I'm, I'm shutting up. And so we have that, that secrecy aspect there to dig through, but he told me that he saw astonishing things when he was flying, that he saw astonishing craft uh, that were not ours. And he spoke of the technology that we had at the time. He said back during when he was developing some of the Blackbird photographs and all these other things uh, for the NSA and doing some things like that. He said, John, we had such night vision that a plane flying over, he said, I developed a photograph and there was a enemy soldier standing out under a tree at night taking a leak and you could see his urine stream. Can I, if I could jump in very quickly, are you familiar, Mr. Russell, to add to that point there uh, with Mr. Jacques Vallée by chance? Yeah. Okay. Um, I, it's interesting because he had said, uh, Mr. Vallée and Mr. James Fox uh, had said on Joe Rogan a couple years back at this point um, that back during the congressional hearings, some classified, some not in the 70s pertaining to the Soviets and all of this, there were certain individuals within the uh, NSA before it was officially acknowledged that they claimed and testified to Congress. Um, I, I don't know if it was in a classified or unclassified setting, but at this point, it's been so long, it doesn't matter at this point, where he said right. to Congress, he could see in the Soviet Union, the little snow fractals drop on top of the the um i think the statue of i forgot who it was outside of the kgb building and this was he he testified to congress in the 70s about this about tech that he had in the early 60s so you yeah. and i agree with you sir to your point they're telling us we don't know this is absolutely i mean preposterous yeah it's it's just you know the technology has been there from a long time back and it just beggars the imagination to think that what we're capable of now with our technology, because everything that's revealed is the tip of the iceberg. You know, everything that science, military, and, and all technology and the government, everything they reveal is the teeniest, tiniest tip of the iceberg. And there's tons below that, that and it just it just boggles the mind. But yeah, we we have to know. And it's it's frustrating to me. Uh, as a psychic who has been a UFO experiencer many times, uh, it's frustrating to me to try and communicate with these beings or get a signal or get some, uh, some concept or some idea of who they are, why they're here and what's going on. And there seems to be some type of resistance to that. And, uh, and, and it's very frustrating and it's compounded by the fact that a lot of the so-called UFO experiencers have these pie in the sky, by and by, goody two shoes as they're here to save us stories. 
that never pan out, never contribute anything to humanity, never contribute to peace, healing, health, uh, energy, anything else. And then you got a lot of just pure nutcases out there in the UFO community. Let's admit to it. Let's call it what it is. And these people are making ridiculous, outrageous claims and saying outrageous things for which they have absolutely no proof, nothing to back anything up. And you have people like um, uh, like Anjali, who did the uh, uh, the uh, oh, press conference. And Jolly, yes. I, I do you think and she was supposed to have an alien at the press conference at the yeah. Washington Steps? Well, that fell through, but she was there. And then on Twitter and various other things and various other interviews, uh, she had met the aliens and they were in a cave on some guy's property on his ranch and private property. And the aliens had agreed to come out and and uh, be interviewed by major news organizations. And the world was going to finally know that on and on and on with this ignorant nonsense. And of course, nothing to any of it never happened, all fell through. There's always an excuse when things fall through and don't come to pass. Well, this is why and this is why that baloney. You know, it's just, it's ignorant nonsense. And I'm not, that, uh, sorry, sir. I'm not saying her specifically, but I am familiar with Anjali and that, that situation there. But do you yeah. think, again, going back to the concept of uh, deliberate divorces, if you will, um, instead of between science and the government, do you think there's a, uh, dare I say, a stigma campaign or people that are not all of them, but dare I say, um, employed in one way or another to create such court, uh, such nonsense to try and um, delegitimize things? Yeah. Like, you yourself. know, that's a, that's a very strong part possibility if it could be um what better way to draw attention away from this and discredit this right than to send people out there with this misinformation and disinformation right and uh, so that you know it could be happening uh in an official or, or quasi-official capacity it absolutely could but whatever the the reason for it uh, people start getting interested in this and start giving it some credence and then they run into nonsense like that and they're like I don't want anything to do with these nutcases I don't want to be involved with this kind of silliness and then that you know causes people to back off from it so they do, they do what you said the scientists do if they can't repeat an experiment they throw everyone in the same bucket and say okay they're all nuts yeah, yeah. exactly right exactly right and, and it's very frustrating with the with the UFO uh, thing. Like I said, I've had several experiences. Um, and I, I saw a uh, an interview with Rob Shelsky, who was a MUFON field investigator. And he was talking about uh, the UFO experiences. And he said, you know, where is the experience where I was lost in the woods at night and I feared for my well-being, maybe even my life and my safety? And this UFO came over, shone a beam of light down and led me out of the woods to safety. Where is that story? We don't have that. Right. But we have abductions. We have cattle mutilations. We have, you know, um, they come over and shut nuclear missile silos down showing, hey, you know, we're perfectly capable of shutting everything down here. And people misinterpret that. They say, well, they're just showing us, hey, you need to quit messing with this stuff. And, you know, this is this is dangerous and harmful. That's nonsense. If that's the message they want to convey, there's a lot better ways and a lot easier ways to do that. I agree. And, uh, you know, these craft, these beings have been visiting this planet, active on this planet for no telling how long, because you go back way before technology. 
our technology existed and these craft were zipping around and these visitations were occurring on this planet. And people always say, well, the, the two theories that I really hate and, and really, really detest. One is that uh, there are us from the future come back to guide us and save us. And I say, well, they're doing an awfully poor job of this. <laughs> The other thing is they're the watchers. They're here to watch over the planet and this and the other. Well, again, they're doing a horrific job because now we're in what the third year of the pandemic and uh, no end in sight. And we have more wars than we've ever had. And Russia's invaded Ukraine and on and on and on and on and on. I don't mean to fear monger, but do you, do you subscribe or potentially or not subscribe, but are you open to the possibility of, um, again, I don't mean to put a negative connotation to this, but the, a lot of people have been exploring the idea, this simulation theory, we're inside of a metaverse, a video game, a spiritual one, if you will, or an or a organic one, whether for better or worse is not for me to say, but do you, are you open to that? Or do you think that's, I don't, yeah, I don't subscribe to that. And, uh, and the reason why is, that falls into when we were in high school and we would look at each other and be a little buzzed and say, you know, I call this red and I might see it as red, but you might see it as green, but you also call it red, you know, and it falls into that kind of, mm. you know, pseudo philosophical thinking. The, the, the labeling of it. Yeah. Right. And, and Yet you get off into this pseudo philosophical stuff and, and you can make up a possibility for anything, but that doesn't give you any concrete answers and it doesn't lead you anywhere. And my final analysis and everything has always been uh, when people say, well, the aliens created us. There's a spiritual component to every single thing on this planet by evidence that we interact with this invisible realm, the other side, and there has to be a creator. So if the aliens created us, who created the aliens? Right. There has to be an ultimate creator. There has to be an ultimate creation. It's like that and, scene from Prometheus when they find the scientists find the aliens and that the aliens created humans. And then one of the scientists' husband says to his wife, you can take the, the cross off your necklace now. Uh, your, the, the cross off of, yeah, your necklace, right, your chain. Right. And she goes, why? He goes, well, we found our creator. She goes, yes, but who made them? Exactly right. Exactly right. And so we get, you know, my, my uh, thrust and all of my investigations, all of my learning, all of my readings, everything that I do, my focus is this has got to be practical. It has to work. And it has to work on the physical realm that we live in and that we have to deal with. Now, if you don't believe in gravity, that's fine, but go jump off a building, you're gonna go splat. We have natural laws that we have to enact with on a daily basis, whether we want to or not, whether we believe in them or not. We have to adhere to it, yeah. Yeah, and we have things that we have to do bodily, whether we believe in it or agree with it or not. You don't eat and drink, you die. You don't sleep, you hallucinate and die. Um, you know, there's, there's all these things that bind us and constrict us. And in trying to transcend all of this, we get into areas of pure speculation that are pure philosophy and we can make up anything or meditate and envision anything or imagine anything, but that doesn't mean it's reality. Mm. And it doesn't mean that it affects this reality in a positive way. 
And you can argue all you want to, well, this reality isn't here, this chair isn't really here, it's just a bunch of molecules vibrating at a different, whatever, fine, I have to sit here or else I'm sitting on the floor and that's not very comfortable. <laughs> so we have these things we have to deal with. Right. Now, if we have to deal with these things in the physical realm, let's find ways to connect with the spiritual realm and utilize that power to make things better for us here, to make better ways of healing, to make better ways of peace and harmony on the planet, to find ways to, to stop warfare, uh, to find ways to better connect with these higher realms of consciousness that really could lead us to something good and to something great. Do you, oh, I just wanted to Go ask, ahead. do you think that there has been a, um, I, I don't mean to go left field here on this question, but in, in addition to what you're saying here, um, do you think there's been a potential, and I, I don't mean to um, sort of just kind of go out there, if you will, on a limb, but a, I've really been struggling and with the concept of how the English language derived from Latin seems to, dare I say, almost deliberately or conspiratorially, if I will, create a limit on a lot of things, for example, like when we say we're astral projecting, I, I had a personal experience just last week. Ever since that experience, sir, I hate to use the word astral. It's much more than that. So right. do, you, do you think there's been a, say, three, four, five hundred years ago under the Anglo-Saxon influence of the West and Europe, there's been a limitation on words so that, again, I'm, for example, I don't want to say forced, but I feel forced because of the, the English language limits to use the words simulation theory and all these kinds of things. Right, right. Well, I think that that's a pretty good description. Um, you know, knowledge has always been withheld by those that possessed it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all you got to do is study history to, to learn that, you know, they didn't want people to read because if you read, then you understood and you had an extra level of power and freedom and so on and so forth. So, Language has always been controlled and confined. And, you know, like we have the Webster's official dictionary, these words are recognized, you know, uh, these words are not that come from slang or the hip hop community or whatever. And then they find their way into common usage and they become so popular and so prevalent that finally the dictionary goes, okay, well, we gotta, we gotta stick this in here. We can't ignore it any longer. But yeah, I think that's a lot of it. And I think we've been confined by phrases that constrict things, that narrow things down to a preconceived viewpoint. When, like you say, there's actually so much more. There's, there's a lot more. And by trying to describe a certain experience only a certain way, then you necessarily limit that and limit people's interpretations and understandings of it and limit how that can be portrayed or communicated or conveyed to people. So I think that I think that is a problem. And you know, it's like in the in the paranormal, the spiritual community, the psychic community, uh, we will have people say, well, I'm this, but I don't do that. You know, I'm a psychic, but I can't do psychometry or I can't do uh, predictions or whatever this and the other. And when I set out to explore my gift and to explore this realm, I didn't put any restrictions on myself. I let myself explore and examine every spiritual tool and technique, every psychic tool and technique, every paranormal tool and technique that there was. And I continue to do so to this day. And I don't say, well, because I'm this, I'm not that. 
I'd say I'm everything. I, I experiment with it all. I utilize it all. Now, certain things are stronger within my repertoire than other things are, but that doesn't keep me from experimenting with them, from using them, from acknowledging their reality. And so we close ourselves down too much in this quest to gain this knowledge. And we narrow ourselves down into these channels where we follow a teacher, a precept, a organization, a religion or whatever. And all that does is constrict us and blind us to something further that we'll not be able to experience, connect with, uh, that would be beneficial to us. And that creates and, more confirmation biases and people keep mm -hmm. trying to check off boxes that it's like, um, I've been using this example with my, my audience and community lately. Like for example, uh, say uh, Mr. Russell, sir, uh, my background is mainly Italian. So forgive me for this example. You, you hand me a plate of pasta and the sauce is red and the whole thing. But I look at you say as the, the, um, un, uh, the immature spiritual individual as, hold on, I've been taught my whole life the sauce is supposed to be green. You know, and I keep thinking, you know, and that speaks to physics too. the the, the closed minded right. of, oh, I was taught it has to be this way. So why isn't the equation? So it must not work. Forget it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And and then we also uh, create these divisions within the the research community for the paranormal and for the psychic realm. And an example of that, I was giving this example to somebody the other day, and then lo and behold, on a podcast I was on, over in the chat thing, it was like somebody said the exact thing. They were like, well, I, I believe in UFOs, but I don't believe in psychics, you know, or I believe in UFOs, but I don't believe in Bigfoot, or I believe in psychics, but I don't believe in mediums, which is basically the same thing, really. And so it's like we create all these divisions where, okay, there's something supernatural or paranormal out there. And I can believe in that, that one, but I can't believe in this other one or these other ones. Or that's what, right. That's what I was trying to ask about the, uh, the, the Latin influence there for, in the Anglo-Saxon community. If there's been a deliberate, again, psychic medium, remote viewer, channeler, right. whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's sort of like what you said. It's like in school, some people are naturally better at math than English per se. When right. you go exercise, some people spend 30 minutes in the gym and their muscles grow. Others have to spend three hours in the gym, right? It's the same type exactly. of thing. Exactly. Right. Right. Of thing. And, and it is, it's, it's also very limited, uh, limiting and it's, and it's very divisive and it keeps us again from coming together and marrying the things we need to, to make some true progress in this and egos get in the way. Uh, you know, we had, uh, I write about in my second book, when I was growing up, we had uh, a, a spiritualist circle or a, a prayer group, whatever appellation you want to give it, whatever you want to call it. And we met at, uh, at my house, at my parents' house. And I sat in on a lot of these as I was growing up. And initially the focus was this, uh, or the modus operandi was this. Uh, we would have people come in and say, okay, look, we're not, inner peace movement was popular at the time. Ekankar was popular at the time, a lot of these movements. And we would tell people, say, look, if you want to pray a Christian prayer, awesome. If you want to use a technique from inner peace movement or Ekankar, great. If you want to use some other technique from some other religion or some other teaching, great. If you want to use pure visualization or affirmation, great. But work, you utilize what works for you and don't expect the rest of the group to have to follow that path. 
So in other words, if you're an Ekankar aficionado, don't expect us to use Ekankar techniques. If that works for you, great. If you want to use that, great. If you want to pray, great. If you want to affirm or visualize, great. If you want to use an IPM technique, great. But let's do this. Here's the focus. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. We're going to send healing energy to Joe Smith. And you send that healing energy in the manner that's meaningful and relevant and works for you. And we'll all do what works for us individually. But collectively, we will focus that towards one aim. That is, I would like to say very quickly, sir, uh, for my, uh, for our audience on my end, I've been giving this example lately, I have to say, sir, you're almost, dare I say, I have this uh, list of questions on the left side of my screen, and you're literally ticking them off before I ask them. <laughs> I'm not kidding. But um, for my audience, what Mr. Russell is also trying to say, as I interpret it, is sort of like, um, for the, the, for dare I say, like my generation with smartphones, uh, Android, iPhone, you may have your text messaging app on the bottom screen, I may have it on a folder in the screen, the, the page over, we have two different ways of getting there, but we get to the same place. Exactly right. Exactly right. right. And as long as we did that, uh, we got some marvelous results, some fantastic results, some, some really amazing things happened. Uh, but then it became, well, this new book has just come out. Have you read that? I think the group should use this and try this technique. And so that began to muddy the waters and, and kind of diffuse the focus of everything. And then egos got in the way. It was like, well, I want to lead the group. Why can't I lead the group this time? Or we always meet here. Why can't we meet at my house sometime? And so people begin to splinter away and try and attract followers according to their own ego. And, well, you know, I think we should use nothing but Ekankar. And so whoever believes that way, come to my house and, and that type of thing. And the result was that the group disintegrated. It splintered and disintegrated and lost its effectiveness. And, uh, you know, that tends to happen uh, in everything. And it's, it's something that's very difficult uh, to guard against. You have to sublimate your ego and everyone in that group and an organization has to sublimate their egos and if a bunch of people are working together uh, the scientist with the degree from harvard or yale or mit or wherever or caltech whatever the scientist has to be willing to sublimate his ego, ego to the psychic that comes in and says in this particular instance this may override the scientific theory or application, or we may have to find a better way to integrate that scientific theory or application. And likewise, um, a psychic that believes in, in a certain structure or a certain way may have to sublimate that ego to the witch doctor that comes in and says, hey, you know, I've been studying this shamanistic technique forever today and, and this works. Okay, well, let's try that. So it, it all has to be an, an amalgamation uh, of all these different tools and techniques and say, let's find out what works and what doesn't. And hey, in this particular circumstance, maybe EVP works better than the psychic or maybe the psychic works better than the shaman or maybe the Ouija board works better than the REM pod or maybe, you know, whatever. So, oh, and I have to throw in for the Ouija board, people that are scared to death of the Ouija board, that's a tool of Satan, you always open a portal to demons, you're gonna be possessed. Why is it only the Ouija board? 
We don't do that with the crystal ball. We don't do that with tarot cards. We don't do that with pendulums. We don't do that with any other form of divination. It's just the Ouija board that gets singled out for the bad rap. Now you're doing the same thing if you're using a crystal ball. You're, you, you're using the same technique if you're using tarot cards. If you're a dowser and you're going out water witching, you're using the same force, same energy, same technique from the other side. Why does Ouija board get signaled out for a bad rap? I've used one since I was 15, never had a problem gotten useful information from it, so on and so forth. But that's another example of where dogma makes it into something. And then uh, you take a perfectly good tool. People think Ouija boards are new. They've been around forever. The, the Indians had talking boards. The Native American Indians had talking boards they utilized. In ancient history, you can research back and find uh, talking boards and various type devices like that in ancient history. So they've been around forever. But that's an example where there's a useful tool uh, that some people can use with with great facility that's for some reason gotten this bad rap over everything else and now it's it's denied you can't do that you can't use that and so you have to get past all these uh you know ridiculous assertions and assumptions and maybe there's somebody that's been using a ouija board their whole life and they get phenomenal accurate information verifiable information bring them into the paranormal group and to the uh, paranormal investigation and turn them loose. Maybe they'll get something better than I did or that somebody else does or that there's no other way of getting it. Right. But, you know, we, we look down on those things and that kind of goes back, Dave, to what you're talking about where things are restricted, looked down upon, uh, you know, so on and so forth. And that's what we have to get past in this. And if we're gonna make some, some real, uh, you know, real movement forward, and again, get rid of the egos, be willing to sublimate yourself to something else. And, you know, I will look at anybody and anything, any of their claims, and if it's valid, if it really works, if they're really got it, really have that capability, let's use that, you know. Right. Uh, if it's nonsense, we throw it out the window. But if it works, let's use it. And I think that the more uh, we put things together, the more science and technology we put together with the realm of the paranormal and work on that, we can make great advances, but I'll give you an example of that. I have a friend uh, that was at, uh, at Stanford when, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, when they started Stanford Research Institute. And he knew Podoff and Targ and Geller and all these guys. Uh, he he uh, piled around with them and knew them and he was doing research there. He's a scientist and he was doing research there uh, not at SRI, but at the same time SRI was doing research there. So he was uh, uh, privy to a lot of the stuff that was going on. And he gave me an example that absolutely fried my mind, blew my hair back, and, and it still does. And it was so amazing, but it also shows you that bias or that restriction or that division or that divorce that you've been talking about. Um, the, uh, the alphabet agencies threw a lot of money at Stanford because the, uh, the remote viewing and all these things worked. And so one of the people that had commissioned a piece of remote viewing that my friend became privy to and saw uh, the target was a, uh, a bench by a, a train track, I guess commuter train or something like that. And it was in a public area and there were, you know, trees, fountains, whatever around. And uh, I don't remember the exact description, but that's the gist of it. So anyways, uh, the remote viewer 
gets the person on the bench and gets the, the surroundings and gets the train tracks and everything. And so the alphabet agency person, the government person, whoever it was said, okay, the experiment's a success. And my scientist friend is looking at it and he goes, where's the train? And the guy said, what do you mean? And so my scientist friend explained it to me and I'm a professional photographer and I immediately got it. He said, if you take a, a, a slow speed film camera with slow speed film in it and set it up and the train goes by, you don't see the train. And that's one of the first things that you learn as you're becoming a photographer. One of the first assignments that I got in my photography course was Here's a busy New York intersection in New York City. How do you take a picture of the buildings with no people in it when it's the most popularly busiest place on earth? You slow speed film and a slow shutter speed and people walk right by and the camera didn't even pick them up, but you get the building because it's stationary. So he said, now, if you take and I got it right away because I was a photographer. I was like, oh my God. And he said, now, if you take a fast film and a fast shutter speed, you get stop all the motion that's there. You get all the motion that's going by. So he told this to the guy and he said, you know, look at your remote viewer as a slow speed film camera with slow shutter, shutter setting and slow speed film. The train's going by, but he's not getting it. Now, what if there were a way to take your remote viewer and somehow tweak him through training and, and, and learning and experimentation and turn him into a high-speed film camera with high-speed film on a fast shutter setting so that when the train comes by, he also, oh, there's a train going by right now too. And the guy said, irrelevant, we've got our result, that's all we need. And so <laughs> that goes back to what we're talking about is, you know, a lot of these people in the intelligence or scientific community or government or whatever, it's like, hey, there could be a better way and we could get even more. Yeah, got what I need, you know, and, and leave it alone. So that was the response, that was the reaction. And so that's another problem that we encounter when we're trying to investigate these things in a meaningful way and do something good and, and have some advancement is we meet that resistance of, man, who cares, got what I need. Does this speak to you, Mr. Russell, pertaining to vibrations, if you will, moving so quickly at different rates? And I, this, to me, at least, I made a personal correlation right now in my head of, again, this concept of literally life all, te all around us, teeming with life, but just, right. dare I say, I don't want to use this word literally, but maybe sort of like a surfer, metaphorically, riding different frequency waves at the Absolutely. macro versus the micro. Yeah. Well, you have to understand that life is that way because... Uh, where I sit right now and where Riel sits right now and where you sit right now, Dave, there are radio waves going through the air around us constantly and from many, many different sources. We're not aware of it. We don't know they're there. We don't hear the music. We don't hear the voices or whatever because we're not tuned into that. And if, we... now, if I get a radio and put it here in front of me and mess with the dial and tune in, oh, I'll, oh there's country music. Uh, radio waves around me, I'm getting country music station. But turn a little bit further, I get a jazz station. Turn a little bit further, I get talk and news and so on and so forth. So these waves are constantly there. We're just not aware of them unless we grab the mechanism to tune into them. And that Visually. mechanism we call the radio, but really, like you said, Ouija, talking box, magic box, you can call it whatever you like. Yeah. 
exactly. And then visually, um, you have got to realize that there are things in the spectrum that we can't see with our physical eyes. And so there are ways of, of adapting to that, like our military gets night vision binoculars and uh, you can get infrared settings on cameras to see at night or to convert things into an infrared view and all these other types of things. So those things exist, they're there all the time. We just don't see them with our normal vision, like we don't hear the radio waves with our ears and so on and so forth. So who knows what entities, beings, dimensions, uh, sounds, sights are around us all right now that we're just simply not aware of. And that's where I believe that uh, you can take science and try and figure out where those frequencies lie and convert them into something that then we can witness with our physical eyes, hear with our physical ears, so on and so forth. Just like when Edison was working on a device to communicate with the dead, uh, to communicate with the other side. Um, and, and people, again, you know, they run into these, uh, these problems. These things are very difficult. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of phonies and a lot of cons and a lot of things out there in this regard. And so it makes it very difficult. And then you have to wonder, uh, about government interference. You look at Tesla and the incredible, mind-blowing, mind-boggling things that guy was, was doing and was attempting to do. And uh, no government support, no support from the mainstream scientific community, and, and certainly uh, no uh, support at all from the religious or spiritual communities for the most part, because that goes against the status quo. Uh, one of the big problems in UFO research I, I saw in uh, one of the documentaries I watched, and they were talking about uh, remote viewing and how successful it had been and uh, the pushback that uh, the remote viewing and the UFO investigations and things got from a lot of the members in politics and, and even in science and other things because they were devout Christians. And so to them, anything that, that was outside of the Bible was of the devil, smacked of the devil, or it was demonic. We don't investigate these UFOs. We don't mess with them. They're demonic. They're demons. We let God take care of that. We don't investigate these psychic powers because that's that's not biblical. We don't we don't mess with the devil. We don't get involved with that. What so, happens when we are a fractal of God or the source, if you will? That's that that's what I, I wonder. Right? <laughs> yeah, really. So so who's going to do that's, that's who's gonna more do that divisiveness and that restriction and that difficulty? Uh, that, that we have in investigating these things. And then you get into uh, people like some of the well-known people in, in the uh, uh, paranormal and, and UFO research community. Um, they don't really have anything. They have a lot of books out. Uh, and some of them haven't even had experiences. Some have, but a lot of them haven't. And uh, some of them, it's, it's come to my attention over the years as I've read things and researched things that a lot of what's passed off as knowledge is they've just read somebody else's theory about something and then written about it. They haven't ripped it off, but they've just written about it. And they, okay, well, here it is. Well, that's nothing. And so a lot of these, like the, the paranormal um, conferences and things, uh, I'm not denigrating anybody or putting any, anybody down, but when you go to them, what do you learn? What do you get? You know, I hear you. I People hear. are selling their books, <laughs> you know, but uh, 
what what actual knowledge what do we have that we can actually hang our hats on and uh, you know the ufo industry has become ufology's become um the ufology's become a cottage industry uh, yeah. you know you, you go on the conferences and you get your appearance fee and you sell your books and and this and the other but what have you actually contributed what have you actually got and it's like well if you level that criticism at me I've got 50 years worth of clients that say, hey, this guy's hit the nail on the head, his prediction's been 80, 90% accurate, so on and so forth. I've got paranormal investigations where people have seen these things manifest physically with me. Sometimes we've captured them on film. Sometimes we've captured them on audio. Sometimes we've captured them on camera. When I did the uh, investigation uh, for the, uh, the History Channel, I, I told them uh, during part of the investigation, uh, that a spirit was walking through me. And as I said that, we captured on the FLIR camera footprints on the floor, walking across the floor and walking through me as I said that. You captured, that was captured on a FLIR camera as you that said. That was captured on a FLIR camera. That was captured on, on film, yeah. So what is it, and I'm just speaking uh, metaphorically here, what would a scientist say in this particular case? You have what's referred to as data, a data point of evidence. It, I, I, I imagine they would say something as in if that, dare I say, bothers their ego. They would simply say, oh, well. Camera artifact. Really? Camera artifact. They always they always pass it off as a camera artifact. Oh wow! And we're supposed to believe everything that NASA puts out, right? Yeah, yeah, camera artifact. Mm -hmm. And so that's a lot of the things that some people have been trying to do with the things I've captured at Skinwalker Ranch. Oh, it's just a camera artifact. Well, if you know anything about cameras, film or digital, you know there are certain things that are not camera artifacts. And if I capture, which I have, uh, on film. Uh, one of the uh, the uh, spirit photographs I captured one time when we lived in New York, uh, we lived about 20 feet away from this beautiful clear stream that was full of boulders. And we actually owned part of the stream where the property we owned this time, it was in town. Um, and I would go out there and, and take jillions of photographs of the beautiful trees and the foliage and the, the boulders and the streams and the rock the stream water going over the rocks and mess with exposure speeds to get beautiful effects and all those things. So I spent as, as much time as I could out there. And um, now this is with a film camera and the, the stream was shallow where it was at. You can see all the, all the stuff, all the rocks and everything bottom. And uh, it was slow flowing most of the time. And I was out there every single day, if not taking photographs, just sitting there having a beer and looking at the water and enjoying it. And I would periodically get out there and put on my tennis shoes, wade into the stream and clean it up where, you know, debris had come through, somebody had thrown a can in or whatever. So I knew every single thing that was in that stretch of stream. I knew if a, a rock was out of place in that stream. So looking at it constantly and looking at it through the camera, I would notice if there was anything unusual there. So I was taking a, a picture of the shallow part of the stream where I normally did and I always looked at the stream kind of set up my shot before I looked through the viewfinder, looked through the viewfinder, saw the normal view of the stream, took the shot. When the film was developed, and this is clear as a bell, and I've got to find it because we've moved and I've got a bunch of stuff still out in the garage that I've got to dig out. But I have this print and as clear as a bell on this print, there is an orange jack-o'-lantern submerged under the water in that spot that I was shooting an orange body with a green stem 
and little triangular cutout eyes and a little jagged mouth, just like you'd make on a normal jack-o'-lantern when you're carving it for Halloween. And that appeared on the film underneath the water there. Now that's not a camera artifact. <laughs> you can camera artifact till the cows come home. You're not gonna get an orange jack-o'-lantern with a green stem and eyes cut out and right. a little jaggedy mouth that's absolutely, totally, completely, clearly visible and about the size of what a, a large pumpkin, a large jack-o'-lantern would be. And it's clearly submerged under the water. And that's a physical impossibility. And it's not a camera artifact. Even if we look but, at it mathematically, how many times in a, in a mathematical probability sense is everything a camera artifact, right? Right, exactly, exactly. And so, um, you know, you captured things like that that there's no way it's a camera artifact. And the funny thing about the, uh, the footprints walking through me, they were a woman's period era shoes. And you could see the footprints clearly on the floor and you could see them walking. <laughs> and you could see them walk right through me and pass through me. When I said, this, this spirit, this woman is walking through me right now. Wow, wow. So, that's what I bring to the table. It's like, if you've got some fantastical story, I'm all yours if you've got the goods. I've got the goods, <laughs> you know? Uh, and other people can see these goods. Now they can dismiss it as a camera artifact or as a you know, glint on the filter or whatever. They can dismiss it however they want to, but it's there. You know, I've shown a lot of people these things, like, oh, it's pareidolia, it's pareidolia. Well, it's not pareidolia because the things in my photographs are so detailed. It's not like you go out and you look at a cloud and go, that one kind of looks like a turtle. Where? Right up there. Where? Well, see, that could be a head sticking out. And this. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. I don't get shots like that. I get shots that are absolutely, undeniably something. People are so skeptical to, to, to uh, even open their minds to this. But then if I may add very quickly, uh, before I want to let Riel jump in, you talk about things like carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide. You can't touch it. But if, for some reason, people acknowledge that it's there like nothing. But it's like, you know, even the, the football game on the TV. I, I played a, a little thing with my friends uh, the other week and I said, you know, how do you know it's there? How do you know it's happening? They go, well, it's on the TV. I go, are you at the yeah. game? And they, they go, no. And then they go, oh, shit, we see what you're saying. I'm like, yep. right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. But I, I did want to give an opportunity. Uh, Riel, did you want to jump in with a, a couple questions for Mr. Russell? And uh, before, right before you do, I just want to say for when the audience is watching and listening to this afterwards, I really do mean this when I say this, this list of questions, Mr. Uh, Russell has so graciously transitioned to each answering each one before I asked it. And I'm not trying to exaggerate or sensationalize, but I really do mean that he's hit almost every nail on the head that I've written down. So uh, pretty much proving his abilities, right? <laughs> Riel, please. <laughs> Whether he knows that or not. Uh, yeah. Wow. That, I love, yeah. Listening to your stories is incredible. Um, I was wondering, it, okay. So first off, this is going back to in the earlier part of the conversation where you talk about religion, religion doesn't work. Right. Uh, so what do you mean by that? Because what is the point of religion? And what do you mean when you say that religion itself doesn't work? Well, the point of religion is control. You have to dare to believe in a certain being or beings and a certain system and way of living. So it's even Christianity, you have to live a certain way, you have to believe a certain way, you have to be a certain thing, you, you should dress a certain way, 
you should conduct worship in a certain way. You can associate with certain people, others you shouldn't. And so it's all about control in your life. The easiest way to prove that religion doesn't work is let's take Christianity and let's take this ironclad promise in the Bible where Jesus said, if two of you ask anything in my name, it'll be done for you. There's no other conditions. There's no other limitations. Just two people agreeing that we want you, Jesus, to do this for us. Now, that's so easy to bust. How many people are in St. Jude Children's Hospital right now, and you've got one child in there with cancer and 10 family members in agreement praying, God, Jesus, please heal this child, heal this child, and the child dies. It's easy to refute. If it worked, we would be seeing on a demonstrably significant statistical basis miraculous healings, people getting new cars, people getting new jobs, people getting the spouse of their dreams, on and on and on and on and on. But uh, as a former associate pastor for a brief period of a small church, and I'm an ordained minister, and I know that Bible inside and out and upside down, I can tell you that, man, we prayed in agreement for tons of people in the church for various things, and I don't ever recall any significant miraculous healing or cure or blessing or this, that, and the other. It was usually hoop and holler Sunday and oh, woe is me Monday. And so it's easy to prove that these promises don't work. Uh, if they did, we wouldn't have all the sick and dying that we do, and we wouldn't have all the disease and famine that we do, and we wouldn't have the wars that we do. That simple promise, if two of you ask anything, agree in my name and ask me in my name, anything, I'll do it for you. My father in heaven will do it for you. That's, yeah. that's really interesting because that uh, with the UFO uh, kind of like dogma, you're talking about a cottage industry now. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of running on the idea that we're being prepared for a UFO religion. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that would make perfect sense if yeah. we're saying that you, uh, religion is a form of control. Well, yeah. the next way to control everybody is to think that there's this alien God and that's the way to kind of unify mm -hmm. the planet. And they're still going to, unleash a little bit of technology, but keep most of it suppressed as we've right. talked about quite in detail here. So that's really interesting, actually. That's a that's a very good point, And it, it absolutely is plausible, what you're saying. Um, you know, so that's uh, not not beyond the realm of plausibility at all. Right on. Uh, so then also, I have questions. Uh, are you familiar with the Farsight Institute? Yes. Because, yeah, when you're talking about the Stanford uh, research and the shutter speed of the camera, how they just rejected it, saying, nope, we're not interested in that. We got what we wanted. Well, right. I recently listened to an interview with the president of the Farsight Institute with Michael Sala of ExoPolitics. I'm not if you're familiar with him. And they said that the military's uh, approach to remote viewing was a joke and that yeah. they created the Farsight Institute because the governments and the military did such a poor job of actually pursuing this legitimate, credible field, they right. branched out on their own and became their own private organization. So right. learning, have you worked with the Farsight Institute? I haven't, no. Hmm. Uh, I've, I've done very little work uh, with any institutes or anything I've done, uh, was contacted by the FBI once to do some stuff, and uh, that was very unsatisfactory. And uh, I typically try and avoid uh, working with 
institutes. I'm, I'm very selective about who I work with for the simple reason of dogma and control issues and uh, ego and, and this type of thing. And a lot of times people want you to do something, but they want you to utilize your gift to do it their way. And I may be, my, my obligations to the other side, to the, to the power that gives me this gift. And that's where my obligation is. And I may go in and say, okay, they're telling me this, or that I have to do this, or that we need to do this. And if they're wrapped up in some particular focus <laughs> and trying to rope me into that focus, then we're gonna be at loggerheads there. So I'm, I'm very selective about who and what I work with. Mm. And uh, yeah, thank you for that. And, and Dave, I wanted to bring up also what you're talking about with the language, how uh, Eng uh, Latin to English, and we're basically confined by our abilities to express ourselves. Mm -hmm. And when I, going back to the religion topic, I break that word down into Ra, like the, the God Ra, and yeah. Legion, which in the Bible is supposed to be a collective of demons. So yeah. that's kind of how I'm interpreting what religion is. It's, you're basically a legion of these negative entities worshiping arguably in our generations at research, this fourth dimensional parasite being that's basically trying to control everything. Right. Um, right. Yeah, I don't know how that's, I know it's a bit uh, far out in left field, but uh, also I really like that you're, you're criticizing the UFO anecdotes, how they're all so like doom and gloom, abductions, mutilations, where's the healing? How yeah. many people have said, oh, I was beamed up on the board and they cured my sciatica. They, right. you know, they cured right. my cancer. Instead, people are beamed with radiation. They yeah. come out of these with, with with damage so, and, yeah. and sores and I, eye problems and illnesses and diseases and some of them die and, and so on and so forth i did want to say very quickly the amount of at least in my research that i found the amount of reports where people say interestingly if we talk geographically more so at least i could be wrong here but i found my research this seems to occur more so in latin america rather than in africa and compared to say europe or the west these, again, I want it very seldom compared to the very unfortunate experiences people claim to have, but blue orbs, white orbs entering people's bodies whom have cancer the next morning, they're cancer free when they're terminal. I, this is very, as I understand it, and Mr. Russell, as I know you've been researching far longer than I have, so please correct me if I'm wrong. Do you find those instances to be... Um, more, dare I say, rare than the negative experiences Riel just uh, brought up. And I wonder if that has anything to do with some type, you know, as they call the ley lines of the planet and things like this. Right. But I, I, don't, I don't mean to. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, the positive experiences seem to be much, much rarer than the negative experiences. Yeah. And it's very difficult um, to, um, to validate the uh, the actuality the physicality of these positive experiences right. whereas the negative experiences there's an overwhelming uh, body of anecdotal evidence about abductions um, and there are uh, seemingly pretty solid ties to cattle mutilations and those type things um, there's uh, plenty of uh, solid physical evidence where people have interacted with craft and suffered radiation burns, radiation sickness, some type of poisoning, so on and so forth. Yep. So we get a plethora of those type of events and very, very little uh, of, of the good stuff. Now, I think it would be really easy to ferret that out if we could approach it the same way we approach, uh, approach the, uh, the psychic, the spiritual and paranormal realm. That's pretty easy to ferret out there because in all the years of my investigations, 
I've not encountered the Hollywood demon exorcist scenario. Um, I haven't encountered anyone that I thought was legitimately possessed. I've never seen anything I thought was a legitimate exorcism. Uh, I've seen a lot of misrepresentation, misinterpretation, uh, mental illness, <laughs> drug abuse and use uh, that led to uh, uh, misinterpretation because of altered state of consciousness and those types of things. But I, I have not found the demon behind every bush and uh, the negativity and, and things that people are so fond of portraying when they portray the paranormal realm. Uh, it's just like these so-called ghost hunters and the paranormal shows. They're all demon chasers. Demons are everywhere. Demons are responsible for everything. Uh, there's always something negative, always something evil, something scratched me, something bit me, something tried to push me down the stairs. I've done a bajillion paranormal investigations. I've never encountered anything like that. Ever. It's like that woman in the story you shared with Christina Gomez, who was convinced that a ghost was trying to kill her because right. a plate was thrown at her. Right. So I wonder if the negative experiences are because, generally speaking, people are in a state of fear, and the I state of so. fear that people are in are causing them to perceive these experiences as negative. It amplifies it. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. Whereas you, it's a you're coming into it. Interpretation of yeah. the event, just like it was with that woman. She misinterpreted what was going on and, you know, went to the knee jerk response of uh, this ghost tried to kill me, which was, was not, the, uh, not the case at all. And so I think that it's easy to, to cut through that in the psychic, paranormal, spiritual realm. And it becomes harder. Uh, to cut through that in the UFO realm uh, because we have so much hearsay and we have so much uh, anecdotal propaganda. stuff. Yes. Yeah, There's we so have much something. negative entity alien propaganda. That's the essence of Hollywood's uh, portrayal of non-human intelligence. It's here to kill us. It's a threat. Exactly. exactly. So of course we're going to be terrified if you see something yeah. there. And, and maybe and it's like a dog. No, you know, at this stage of the game, Nobody knows, and the best researchers admitted, we don't know where these craft come from, who's piloting them, what their intents are, what their purposes are. We know they're here, we know they're real, we know they're extraterrestrial, but we don't know. And it's a, a very strange thing that we have this difficulty in trying to establish that communication. Uh, and it may be that um, our tendency it's like Stanton Friedman said. He said that if you studied the earth, uh, our main purpose seems to be tribal warfare from the way we spend our wealth. Yep. And that every new frontier is another place to conquer and to do battle. And it may be that these intelligences have a difficulty in getting through to us, communicating with us, because mankind's natural tendency is to exploit. And so if there were some being that came down and came out of a craft and went in St. Jude and healed all the kids, the government's going to grab that alien and they're going to start interrogating him. And they're going to say, is there some way that we can use this guy in warfare to overcome our enemies? Can we use this guy against Russia? <laughs> can we use this guy against China? You know? I see so, what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, though, do you think that that is actually the natural state of, of humans? Or is that more of like a corrupt version of how we're supposed to be? Because I mean, I, I, I personally don't try to like exploit and take advantage of people. I think it should be about cooperation, not competition. Be. 
but Which, it isn't. And there is there is a natural corruption to this world, however it came about. And there is a natural corruption to humanity, however that came about. And the analogy that I always give there, and it's a valid one, and it's it's real easy to prove. You can take ten people; they're all in good health. They have all the money they need. They each have a good, safe, comfortable home. They have a brand new car. They can eat all of the food they they need to. Uh, they can take vacations. They can do whatever they want to. And out of that group of ten, one of them is going to look at the others and go. How can I control and manipulate these suckers? And how can I get some of what they've got? And that's the natural human tendency. Now, it is widespread and it is in all of us to a degree. Uh, and that's what we work on and, and try and control and subjugate that so that we do become giving, caring human beings that, that make a responsible, positive difference on this planet. But at the core of everything, and you know, the old saying, we all have our price. And I think we do. I think we do all have our price. And, um, you know, whether that is fear, threat, money, something else, I, I think we all do have our price. We all have our weaknesses. And those are the things that we have to look at and watch and safeguard and, uh, and resist and strive against. You know, it would be... Um, real easy if somebody came along and, uh, you know, given my present financial circumstances, if somebody came along and said, oh, John, we, we need you for um, this new paranormal show we're doing, and we're going to pay you hundred grand a year starting out, and, uh, but you can't talk about this, you can't talk about this, you can't do this, and you got to be, uh, you know, subject to this guy. Uh, That's that control I mechanism. Uh, yeah, it's 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 going to be tempting because we could use that hundred grand a year. Let me tell you, but I couldn't do it, you know. I, and I've evolved to the point that I can successfully say, well, no, under those circumstances, I, I have to decline that. As much as I would love it, need it, and like it, want it, and, and everything else, I, I would have to decline that. But life, I think, keeps pressing us and and seeing where that price is and where that line is and where, what our price is, what our cost is. And I think that a and good example of that is people, in, yeah, is people in Congress and politics and things like that. It's quite easy to see that there's a price there. And, you know, we have lobbyists, lobbyists go in with a ton of money and go, hey, I, I need this bill passed or I need favor for my business or I need consideration for this. And here's a briefcase full of money. And that's well acknowledged. Yeah. And yeah. so we have our prices. And then when you get to that point, uh, it becomes difficult to turn loose of it. I think the other thing that we have to deal with is that that fear, that threat, that force. And if money don't get you, uh, it's like they had a, a saying, the cartels supposedly had a saying in Mexico, the money or the bullet, which do you want? So, you know, we'll we'll pay this, put this big sack of gold on the desk here for you, so to speak. Or you can take the bullet, you know, and if we put a big sack of gold on your desk, you're going to live well, your family's taken care of, look at all this money. If you oppose us, boom, which, which is it? Where's your choice? In Spanish, now, call it plata or plomo. Yeah. Thing, yeah. Yeah. And so it becomes real heroic to think that you would resist that. But if you've got family and you care about your wife and your kids and everything else, then it becomes a little more difficult. And it's like when I was in Roswell, they had uh, Alien Encounter 98 in Roswell, and I went and was doing psychic readings there. 
And I got up one morning and Stanton Friedman lectured. I got to see him and it, it was really awesome. And so I said, well, here I am in Roswell. I got to do the touristy thing. I got to go to the Roswell UFO Museum. So one morning before I started my readings, I went down before the museum opened and I was standing outside on the sidewalk, looking in the windows and looking in the door and waiting for it to open. And there was not much foot traffic. I don't think hardly anybody came by. And uh, this lady walked by and uh, we nodded as she approached and ex exchanged pleasantries. And uh, she stopped and she said, oh, you, you're waiting for the UFO museum? And I said, yeah, I got here early. I'm waiting for it to open. She goes, your first time here? I said, no, no. I, I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, it's my, it is my first time here. And um, I said, as a matter of fact, my first time uh, in New Mexico, even though I was born here, my first time to really come in and do anything here. And she goes, oh, and we were small talking. She goes, well, what are you doing? I said, oh God, here it comes. I said, well, I'm a psychic. I'm giving readings over Alien Encounter 98. And she looked at me real intently and uh, she said, well, you'll believe what I'm about to tell you then. You'll understand what I'm about to tell you. So I perked up and uh, she said, when, uh, when I was a child, my brother and I were outside playing when the UFO came over and we saw it crash off over in the distance. And she said, we could tell from the way that it was flying through the air that it was in trouble, that it was having some type of difficulty. We didn't know what it was or why, but we could tell it was in distress. And we saw it crash off over in the distance. And she said, even though we were kids, we knew it wasn't a bird or a plane or Superman or a blimp or a weather balloon or anything else. We knew it was a UFO. We saw it with our own eyes. And uh, I was just gobsmacked. I was like, holy cow, I'm talking to a firsthand eyewitness of the Roswell UFO crash, the big Roswell UFO crash. Supposedly there were several there, but this, this is the main one. And I said, my God, I said, have you ever come forward and, and like been interviewed or talked to newspaper or, or this and the other? And she goes, no, no. And I said, well, why not? I said, you know, we need people yeah. like you to, uh, to come forward and, and to lend credence to this and to, and to give your firsthand account and everything else. She said, well, uh, the reason that I don't, the reason that a lot of people didn't, she said, after that happened, we had people in the military, uh, people that we presumed were in the military, but didn't know. And then people that we didn't know who the heck they were yeah. that knocked on our doors and basically said, if you say anything about this, your bones and the bones of your family will be found out in the desert. I've heard this too from sources. Yeah. Many they sources. Blatantly threatened them. I yeah. was like, holy cow. And she said, yeah. And she said, you know, look, if you're a, a big old strapping brave guy that ain't afraid of the devil himself, you say, bring it. I don't care. But if you got a wife and kids, yep. you don't want your wife and kids harmed. Right. And so she said that was what we experienced uh, as a whole in the town after that. And people were scared to death to talk, scared to death to come forward. And all of a sudden she snapped her head left and right a couple of times, looked up down the street and said, I've said too much. I got to go. Nice meeting you. Bye. And walked off at a brisk pace. So all those years later, that fear was still inculcated in her, was still there. Right. And so that's one of the things that, uh, that we deal with in getting reliable testimony from UFO witnesses is a lot of them have been threatened and they're reluctant to come forward. Can I ask you, sir, uh, pertaining to Roswell, in, during your personal investigations and, and readings of when you were there at the site and all of this, um, 
I have found in my personal research that, and please forgive me if the terms I'm using are not accurate, but uh, there was something, um, there was an accidental, dare I say, <clears throat> Uh, triangulation of a certain set of um, uh, poles or, or uh, um, towers, if you will. And the US military, whether they knew about it or not, is not for me to say, but it created what a lot of people called dead air, if you will. And there were some yep. alleged UFOs doing reconnaissance. And this dead air is what caused uh, more than one actually to crash. Are, is this consistent with your research, sir? Um, a lot of it is. Yeah, I do think that we produce certain atmospheric conditions. Let's just use atmospheric as a as an umbrella term. Sure, yeah. Uh, I think that we do produce some atmospheric conditions that are uh, conducive to downing these craft. And whether it's accidental or deliberate is up for conjecture, but uh, there, there may be a little bit of both there. I don't know, but I would agree with that, yes. It makes me think of like uh, the, you know, 4G, 5G frequencies mm -hmm. and how it's affecting us. Like, yeah, that's very interesting, Gabe. I actually hadn't heard about that myself. Are, yeah. Right. Are you familiar, um, Mr. Um, Mr. Russell, with uh, Dr. Eric Davis by chance? Uh, remotely. <laughs> okay. He had, he had said, uh, but I think one to two years ago, as after the New York Times article in 2017 of November, December came out and all of this, he had claimed that um, he was with ATIP, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program with uh, Hal Pudoff and all those guys there. And he claimed that um, in his personal experience with UAP, UFOs, whatever you want to call it, uh, I, I don't believe when I say this, I'm taking him out of context. He said that there is always, always, always what we call poltergeist activity after a ufo occurrence if you will it may not be uh, immediate after the ufo occurrence but for example dr eric davis said all of the scientists at atip after a certain classified uh, test or event would occur during the day they'd go home and something uh, more so paranormal. Yeah. paranormal if you will would, would mess with them uh, avidly are you um familiar or do you have any thoughts on that pertaining to the interaction of ufos and then paranormal activity right after or shortly after that, that is um something that i am familiar with and that i am aware of and, and believe is concurrent with ufo activity uh i experienced paranormal activity before my first ufo sighting and i'll tell you about that in a little bit but uh, I have um, have read and seen uh, and experienced where these things do occur, uh, and also that goes kind of hand in hand with um, um, oh god I can't think of his name offhand the guy that does the uh, the missing four one one oh Politis yes um, he um, talks about that during these bizarre unexplained missing person cases that these strange uh, weather patterns and phenomena will happen either right before the onset of the investigation during the search or right after the search and a lot of times hampers the search and it's happened enough that it's obviously right. a, a phenomenon that's connected with this and not just random weather occurrences um, so yeah these things do happen and that's another mystery is associating uh, the paranormal with uh, the ufo activity i don't believe they're necessarily connected but I, I believe there is a connectivity there i believe you can see a ufo without experiencing the paranormal activity i believe you can have paranormal activity without the ufo but then again they uh, they do conjoin sometimes 
I remember when I had my, uh, and I write about this in my first book, when I saw my first UFO, I was around the age of 20 and I had been reading professionally for clients since I was 18. I started reading at 15 for friends and family. And I had been doing paranormal investigation and research since the age of 11. I had had tons of physical paranormal manifestations, but I did not believe in UFOs. I did not believe in UFOs. I had read the material, read the books, read the magazines, see the interviews on TV. Nope, nope, nope. Ain't buying it. Just can don't just, buy it. Can I just thank you, sir, for, for saying that? Because there's a lot of people out there that have, dare I say, what we call ego, and they refuse to admit that. They say, oh, I always believed in both. But yeah. I appreciate your humility, truly. So oh, yeah. I just, I just absolutely did not believe in UFOs at all. Right. And uh, one day, I was uh, coming out of this building, and I had parked my car across the street. It was a narrow two-lane road, and the parking lot was visible from the back door of this building. I came out. I could look over and see my car. It was real close. And uh, this was in West Texas, and uh, we were at the, uh, the southern tip end of Tornado Alley. So I grew up with all kinds of bizarre, violent weather, hail and, and tornadoes and everything else. So I come out the door, and this blast of wind hits me in the face. It's about four in the afternoon, I believe it was. And uh, this gust of wind hits me in the face. And I'm like, oh, boy, here we go. We're in for our storms. And it was overcast. And I said, I better make a run for my car before the rain hits, because this is not an everything's bigger in Texas tale. In Texas, in 15 minutes, it can flood your yard or flood underpasses. It'll rain so hard. So I said, well, I'll, I'll beat it to my car before the rain starts. And I looked over across the street at my car in the parking lot. And from the clouds above, attached to the clouds above, was this columnar-shaped cloud, this column of cloud that came down and was resting on the asphalt in the parking lot right by my car. And I looked at this and I said, okay, well, this must be a tornado starting to start up or a dust devil or something. I've never seen anything like it, but that was the only thing I could surmise. And as I look at this thing, it's kind of gently rotating, but it's kind of more roiling and broiling and roiling and... And as I stand and watch it from within the depths of the cloud, and I guess it's maybe four or five feet wide, and from within the depths come out these glowing orbs, these globules of glowing substance, these round balls that emerge, and they're red and they're yellow and they're orange and they're green and they're purple, and they come out and they pulsate and they go back into the cloud. And they're hap this is happening all up and down uh, the, the height of the cloud. Could we call these plasma, if possibly? Could possibly be. I don't know. All I know is at this point, I'm looking at this, and I'm about 20 years old, and I literally said, okay, I've gone nuts. I've, I've lost it. I've gone around the bend. I'm hallucinating. This cannot be. I've, I've lost it. I've gone friggin' nuts. And so I'm sitting there literally thinking, well, I guess I'm going to drive to the hospital and have them check me out. And, and, you know, in spite of all these paranormal experiences, I'm looking at this and this is like over the top. I'm like, no. So I get this crazy, bizarre urge to walk toward the parking lot, to walk toward the cloud. So that doesn't make any sense. So further confirmation, I've cracked. So I take a few steps toward the parking lot and the cloud advances toward me. And I stop and it stops and I walk backward and it backs up. So I do that a few more times with the same results. And I'm back up by the door and the door flies open, hits me in the back. And this buddy of mine comes out and goes, oh, man, I'm sorry. He said, what are you doing standing so close to the door? And he looks up and he goes, oh, boy, it looks like we're in for it. And then he looks down the parking lot and sees that and he goes, what in the world is that? And I'm like, 
I'm happy because I'm not crazy. <laughs> Somebody else has seen this thing. So I said, yeah, but watch this. And I walk toward the cloud and it advances toward me. I stop and it stops. I back up and it backs up and he sees this. I'm like, isn't that the weirdest thing you've ever seen? He looks at me like I'm the weirdest thing he's ever seen. He's like, bye. It scares him to death. He's out of there. His car's the other way and he takes off. So I'm left alone here with this thing now, right? Whoa. So I'm watching it. And another strange thing is, is it's whirling and rolling and brawling and doing all this stuff. Down in the parking lot, there's some debris by the base of the cloud. And it should be like swirling around or blowing or whatever. It's perfectly still. It's not moving. And like this just gets weirder and weirder. So about this time, the cloud goes back up, joins the clouds above. And I stand there for a minute and then make a run for the car. And I'm like, what in God's name is that? So I get out and I know this town like the back of my hand, still do this day. So I know where all the streets are and everything. And that was the only thing that saved me. We had a Sears Roebuck store there and it was on Beauregard Street at the time. And in the back of the uh, Sears store on Tubig Street was a big, huge parking lot for Sears and for the Sears Automotive Department. So as I get out and I'm driving, I'm going down the street and it starts to rain and it begins to rain so hard that I've got my wipers on high and my headlights on and I can't see more than a foot past the hood of my car. That's how hard the rain's coming down. Now I've seen rain in West Texas, but I've never seen anything like this in my life. And I'm, I, there's cars that are parallel parked on the side of the street. And I'm leaning over trying to see those so I don't sideswipe them. I can't see them. And it's finally like I'm going like five, 10 miles an hour. There's no visibility. There's nothing. And I get right on the bumper of this car in front of me. But I almost hit it before I get stopped, before my headlights pick it up. The guy behind me nearly hits me. We, he was stopped at a, at a stoplight. And you could just barely see this little pinprick red glow of the stoplight up here. But I knew I had made it to Tuig Street. So I'm thinking if I can get to that parking lot, pull in there, I'll get sopping wet, I don't care. They have the best sporting goods uh, selection in town in the basement of that Sears. And I've always been an outdoorsman, a sportsman. I said, okay, I'll get sopping wet, I don't care. I'll go in there, I'll look at the sporting goods till the storm passes and I'll drive when it's safe and I can see it again. And I just park any way I can in the parking lot. I forget trying to look for stripes or you know, spaces or anything. So we're poking along and I'm trying to watch the car in front of me and not hit it. And I'm getting so close before my headlights pick up the bumper that it, it just, it's frightening. And I'm leaning over, trying to look out the side window and see where the cars are angle parked. I can't see them. I can't see more than a, than a foot in front of me, barely see this car in front of me, foot past my hood. And with it raining that hard for that long, because it took a long time to creep down the street, creep around, get onto it and start creeping up toward the parking lot. And with it raining that hard for that long, count it, guys, 1001, it's gone. Completely gone. There's no rain. There's not a mist hitting the window. I reach up, turn my wipers off. You can see all the way down the street, all the way up the street, all the way around. It's still overcast. It's still cloudy. But there is not one speck of moisture in the air anywhere. I mean, one second it is raining that hard. The next second, it's gone. It is just literally gone. So about this time, I'm and I'm sitting there just gobsmacked by this. Like, what in God's name is going on? I'm, I'm thinking back to the cloud, and I'm thinking back to this. And over in the opposite lane, 
cars are starting to swerve and almost hit the cars in our lane and people are honking and people are starting to jump out of their cars, open their doors, jump out and yell. And people are rolling down their windows and pointing people pointing up at the sky. I'm like, everybody's gone nuts. And so I look where they're pointing and over the top of the Sears building, about 30 to 50 feet off the top of the Sears building is a shiny metallic silver disc, about 30 to 50 feet in diameter, hovering there over the Sears building no flame, no smoke, no sound, no nothing. And I literally did a cartoon eye rub. <laughs> and I look back up and the thing's there. And I'm like, oh my God. And I start to open my door so I can get out and get a better look. And the UFO just barely, barely perceptibly, just barely moved toward us. And when it did, the clouds came from behind it, low, covered it up. And a split second later, the rain was back with the same intensity as it was before. Didn't start again. It was just there again in that intensity. So I followed this guy in front of me. He went into the Sears parking lot. I followed him at this point. I didn't care if I hit him or not. I said, my insurance will take care of it. I don't care. And I pulled in beside him, tried not to hit him. He jumped out. I could see his dome light come on. He jumped out and ran for the Sears store. And I jumped out and ran after him. The rain was pelting so hard it hurt. And I was shielding my eyes to run. And I didn't wear glasses then. He did, I remember. And we got in there. There was a vestibule inside, a little airlock where you wiped your feet. And then you went on into the store. And then the basement was downstairs off that airlock. So he was just standing there, just standing there on the map where you wiped your feet. And he had his head down. He, and of course, we were dripping water like we both just got out of the shower. And I remember he wore glasses and he hadn't even wiped them off. He was just, just sitting there with his head down, just staring down at the floor. And I came over to him and I stood in front of him. It took a little bit for him to recognize I was even there. And he looked up at me and I said, excuse me, but did you see what I just saw? And he said, yeah, but I damn sure ain't gonna tell nobody. And he sidestepped me and walked off through the store. And I went down in the basement, look at the sporting goods. And that's when I had to become a UFO believer because there the damn thing was in the presence of witnesses in daylight. And I saw it. I can't help but think, sir, if I could say very quickly, there's a, <clears throat> a new uh mini uh mini series show on amazon prime called outer range and i noticed that in entertainment there seems to be this dissemination now in hollywood that they're trying to um it, whether for better or worse is not for me to say but push this message of oh there's one scene in this in this series where <clears throat> the entire town in um i think it's in Wyoming, I believe the entire town sees a mountain in the distance that's a very popular mountain for everyone that grew up there disappear for 10 seconds and reappear and then everyone's calling local sheriff's office and all this and I wonder if that has anything to do with again to correlate back to your your incredible experience there. Um, if, if that has anything to do with slowly preparing the masses for more things like what you went through many years ago that you were you were clearly ready for that others still are not now. You know, that's a strong possibility. It, it could be. Uh, there's, there's just so much here that we don't know. And we know these powerful technologies exist. We know these paranormal things exist. We know that they marry. We know that these paranormal occurrences, like what I experienced with the cloud uh, before I saw the UFO, we know those are connected somehow for some reason. And so that's, that's a great possibility. And I think the frustrating thing for us in all of this is motive uh you know right. what is behind uh what's the motive of these beings of this this craft of these other things 
what are the motive uh, of the people in government and the people in science that may know this and may be covering this up or may, as has been alleged, we don't know, but it's been alleged that they're even working with, uh, with these alien races. What is the motive? I, <laughs> Excuse I, me, I, that's I, the thing that's troublesome is that we as a, a general population, we the people are left out of the loop and ergo left out of the decision-making process. Right. So if someone does know what the purpose of these beings is and is keeping a lid on that and is something that they think would be deleterious to the population at large or that a lot of people would be upset about or not want to participate with or whatever, that's a concern to us. We need to find out what's going on, why it's going on, uh, who's been uh, the uh, architect of the cover-ups right. and what their purpose in doing that is. Um, and, and a lot of it, you know, it, it, you can get to the benign, which it really is, and say, well, um, if they made this technology available, you know, we put the oil and gas industry out of business and this, that, and the other, and they don't want that to happen, so on and so forth. Well, there is motivation for that. Yeah, you, you won't endanger your life. You mess with a man's wallet. So, yeah, that's feasible. That's reasonable. Yeah, there could be powerful people within the energy industry saying, no, we're not allowing this to get that's, out. That's, that's, that's part possible. of that control system. You mess with the man's. See, this makes me wonder if allegedly I've spoken and I'm sure you have your own sources within government where they've said two things to me, Dave. The And they could be, uh, to be fair for the audience, that, you know, it, it could be BS to be to play a healthy, skeptical, neutral perspective. But they've said to me, Dave, what what's coming money cannot buy its way out of. And, and, and that, uh, and not in a fearful way, but with respects to, again, that I've also been told as well, and please correct me if maybe you've heard differently, sir, that the government, the human, uh, on a human perspective, at a very top secret level, we have the technology, and this is, out, dare I say, outdated technology that can um, literally appear, uh, create what we call holograms, but in a much more advanced state. So we yeah. can't tell if that craft we see in the sky is, I'm saying in general, not pertaining to your experience. Right, right. If it's a real metal hardware, if you will, or metallurgy, or if it's a hologram, or if it's a hologram, yeah. And and I have um, I have seen uh, reliable testimony to that uh, to that effect before. Um, there have been uh, there was one documentary that I watched, and uh, the uh, the government person there said that they had the capability to. Um, so influence your thoughts that if you wanted to think it was God talking to you, you would hear his voice and feel his presence and they could place in your mind whatever they wanted you to perceive from that experience. Yep. And I believe 100% that, that's, that we have that capability and that that's active. Uh, I saw, um, I always get really tickled when they say, uh, we, we don't have the capability to shoot things down or defend ourselves or do this or do that. Um, we, we have this, I saw this documentary and we have this ray gun. And this is years ago, going back again, years and years ago. And we have this friggin' ray gun. Yep. And they had it mounted. Uh, the military had it mounted on this vehicle and it was for crowd control. Now, why we haven't used it is kind of a, a mystery to me, like the things that happened in Portland and the riots there, why they didn't bring this out and why you never hear anything about it again. But uh, there was a, a reporter that was um, 
doing this interview with uh, with the um, uh, military personnel about the ray gun, and they had this thing mounted on a truck, and I, they said that they could send the beam out so wide that it would encompass the end zone of a football field, or they could narrow it down. If there was a crowd of a thousand in that end zone, they could narrow it down to one person in that crowd. They could adjust the beam width yep. uh, and selectivity uh, that, that finely. And what the beam did, it was invisible. There was no sound, there was no noise. There was nothing you could see in the air but this beam would basically just cook you from the inside out. And so you couldn't withstand it. You couldn't stand there. There was no way to resist it. If this thing hits you, you gotta go or else you're gonna die. I and think so they the actually used says, it in Australia. They did. Very recently during the pandemic protests. They admitted to they, it. That actually in, came out. They were the, using that in Australia. Um, okay, okay. Yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't aware that they had. Um, this. Uh, so this reporter, he's, He's wearing his leather jacket and he says, okay, just target me with this briefly to see what it feels like. I know, right? It's like, I would have been running leather. there. And so they did just, just give him a touch of this, this invisible beam. And he said, my God, I'm cooking from the inside out. He said, I gotta, gotta move out of the way of this beam. He said, there's no way that you can withstand that. There's no way you can, you know, can be there. So. You, you look at all this technology that we have and you worry about it use, being used on us, you know, by our government, which is always a concern because our government constantly lies to us and has experimented on us and done things. Look at the, uh, the uh, what was the experiment with the, with the uh, uh, African-American men and syphilis. There was a particular name for it and I can't remember it off the top of my head. But, Tuskegee? But, yeah. But look at that and, and research those types of things. So we know the potential is there. And what I've been telling people in, in all of my interviews lately is like, it's, it's crucial that we understand that this spiritual power, the spiritual realm, the psychic realm does exist, yep. that it does have good energy and that we can band together and use that energy against evil forces or against these types of manipulations or whatever. I'll tell people, so look, if you go uh, against an authority figure, the government or whatever else, if you go power for power, you ain't got that power, you're gonna lose. If you go money for money, you ain't got the money, you're gonna lose. Right. But if we band together and collectively use this spiritual force that's available to us all and use that for good and use that to overcome these things, we're gonna have some success, we're gonna succeed. And we have our own invisible ray gun. This is something that yes. um, mm -hmm. a lot of young people don't know about. It was real popular in my time when I was growing up and I was a teenager and was studying all this and learning all of this. Uh, it was a real well-known, a real popular thing, but cloud busting. And what you do is you go out on a basically a clear day. You don't want a lot of wind, you don't want a lot of disturbance and you only want a few little small puffy clouds in the sky here and there. And you sit down and from your third eye region, you visualize in your mind's eye, this beam of energy, like a laser beam coming out from your third eye and traveling up and hitting that cloud. And as it does, you say to that cloud, thank you for dispersing. Thank you for breaking up. You're gonna hit, this energy is gonna hit you and you're gonna evaporate. What's this called, sir, cloud beam? Do that strongly enough and anybody can do it. It's one of the easiest things to learn and you do that and that cloud will just evaporate into thin air. And that te technique was taught initially to, because it was easy to learn and it worked. 
It showed people that, holy God, we can actually do something with our psychic power. We can actually manipulate our physical reality. So we have our own ray gun, right? But the problem is, again, getting people together, uh, enough people together in a joint mind and, and joint focus and, and to do something. And I think the internet is, is a blessing and a curse and cell phones are a blessing and a curse. Yep. Um, you go in and, and go into any store and somebody's gotten gas and they're on their phone while they're pumping the gas and then they're looking at their phone while they walk across the parking lot. And then they're scrolling on their phone while they're talking to the clerk or, or not talking to the clerk and paying their for their gas. And it's just like, we're all hypnotized. Right. We're all just so connected that we have no consciousness of anything that's going on unless it's on some screen in front of us. I was riding my motorcycle one day through this town on one of my pleasure rides. And this woman's walking down the sidewalk with her cell phone and she I'm watching her and she approaches this intersection and walks off the sidewalk into the intersection, into the path of this pickup truck that's turning. And I'm like, oh my God, here goes my pleasure ride because I'm going to have to stop and tell him I'm a witness to this woman walking out in front of this truck and him killing her and it's not his fault. And fortunately, he was paying attention and jammed on his brakes and just narrowly missed hitting her. And she oh, there's a world out here and looks up at the sky and whoo, and puts her head right back down to her phone and walks across the street and keeps on going that way after nearly losing her life. Can I just say, Mr. Russell, that this reminds me of uh, a, a couple things I want to say very quickly The um, for the audience to add uh, credence to Mr. Russell's uh, claims. For example, there are uh, documents from the Soviet Union era that state that um, telekinesis, parapsychology, all of this, they believed and dumped millions of dollars into it before the CIA did. The Soviets believed. Yeah. In on paper, they typed out, this is the mind is, dare they say, more powerful than the atom bomb. And in addition to this, this also for our audience on our end, this is what I believe um, uh, similar to what uh, Mr. Dan Winter speaks to. This is similar to, thanks to Riel for bringing this up, shamanic uh, steering tornadoes, if you will. Um, And I'd like to add as well, uh, Wilhelm Reich, I believe, thank you, Riel, for bringing this up, the inventor of the orgone energy uh, popularized cloud busting before the FDA made his work illegal. Um, And and speaking of right before I uh, lose that thought, um, when you had talked about this, this cloud of of what missed or whatever was that was uh, intelligently following you wherever you moved, sir, I can't help but think of I've spoken to some sources in government that say, Dave, you know, uh, with with respects to quantum computing, there's sometimes a light scene within the the secret classified laboratory settings this blue light from the quantum computer seems to be not only intelligent but dare they say organic which speaks to me of some type of dare i say maybe this is a jump but a threshold doorway from a um i don't want to use the word higher but a a, another type of consciousness right right Some yep. type of consciousness because it did behave in a conscious manner. Right. Also, um, for for the uh, the listeners, for the viewers, uh, check out uh, Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain, and that talks about the work that they did that predated uh, predated all of our efforts here. That was a book that came out when I was a teenager, but it's I imagine you can still find it um, right. in print somewhere, like eight books or whatever. But but yeah, the um, you know there's a lot of thought given to the concept that uh, that consciousness exists, that the earth itself is actually 
a type of consciousness or is conscious. Yep. Uh, there's a, a thought that there are various types of consciousness out there in various things. Uh, storms uh, have been thought by various cultures, including some Native American cultures, to either be conscious, to actually be the storm itself, to be an entity or controlled by an entity or possessed of some type of consciousness. I've experienced things that, uh, that made me think that, and I write about that in, in my books. Um, it's, it's interesting when you talk about uh, the, uh, the computer and what's going on there. Uh, there was a, a study done, the, uh, the guy that did uh, oh, the, where he ate McDonald's for a month, his name will come to me here in a minute. Uh, he did a show on artificial intelligence. And one of the small segments in this was there was a guy that invented these little bitty small robots and they were on wheels and a little bitty and they were they had the only thing they had the knowledge they possessed was they were given little tasks and they were given a charging source and they knew enough to go back to that charging source and recharge themselves mm -hmm. and then go about their tasks now all the little robots had equal access to the charging source but with no programming and with no understanding of the reason why some of the little robots tried to begin to hog the, the charging source. <laughs> so not all the robots, but some of the robots would try and hog the, the, the charging source. Like a swarm, like a beast. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, this concept of artificial intelligence and, and machines becoming intelligent and so on and so forth, that's not far-fetched at all for them developing or having some kind of consciousness. I've always maintained that things have some type of consciousness. It's like if you ever had an old car, I remember my first old car, beat up old junker, and I was so proud of it. And I would take it and wash it and wax it and clean the windows and vacuum the inside. And I'll be doggone, it ran better for a few days or a few weeks after that. Right. And I've talked to a jillion people that have experienced the exact same thing. And so there is a type of consciousness out there. It's not human consciousness, but it's a type of consciousness or a type of intelligence that responds to things and responds to our treatment of it. And so it's, it raises the fears of artificial intelligence. It raises the fears of that developing its consciousness, and that's not going to be a human consciousness. And if it arises out of a powerful supercomputer with all this vast intelligence and ability to do things and control things, what's that going to become? What's, what's going to happen to that? Now, also, and I'm sure you've read about and know about, they had to shut down one of these, the uh, Amazon chatbots. Yep. Uh, because it started spontaneously going started off on its own. Talking, like, talking you don't know where that came from. They started, uh, dare I say, either we can call plotting, conspiring. They started talking. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And there were there were others. There's been cases where machines have developed their own language and started communicating with each other. And we didn't know what that was going on, what they were saying or why. And that uh -huh. was not through our programming that arose spontaneously. Now, there's that possibility. Also think of the possibility that since these invisible beings on the other side can manipulate physical forces here, what's to stop some being on the other side from possessing or manipulating a robot or a robotic entity or some type of artificial intelligence and using that for some purpose? 
Can, can I ask, sir, and I, I do want to say, unfortunately, in the next 10 minutes, we'll probably have to wrap up, but I did want to uh, end with this, with this question here. And I think this question, I've been saving it to the end because I wanted to start with it, but I think that it's actually best that we end with it. I think uh, what I'm about to ask you encompasses everything we've been discussing. Um, this, this concept of what we call intent. Um, I've spoken to some people uh, on the inside, and I want to be very clear that I could have been fed total nonsense as well for the, for the sake of being uh, neutral and, and healthily skeptical. Um, I've been told that regardless of how much uh, someone once said to me, uh, very high level in the military, uh, this person says to me, she goes, uh, Dave, listen, the, you can have all the, the the different types of top secret metallurgies, all the different types of uh, physical material you want to establish an environment to lure, whether it's a UFO, a poltergeist, or, or a, a paranormal being, or whatever. But right. it cannot work. She at least she said this to me, Dave. It cannot work without intent, human intent. Does this speak to you in any regard, sir, pertaining to keeping up? We see advertisements all over the place trying to degradate our, our compass, internal compass that a lot of us right. don't even realize we have because we're so busy, like you said earlier, on the phones. But right. do you find that there, there's some type of um, intent that creates this? Like you said earlier, the more people meditated together, the stronger the results of whatever they were doing? Yeah, I do believe that's a strong possibility, yes. And I also think, you know, we're, we're constantly in a precarious state on this planet. And I think that the only reason that we're still alive and relatively well off, uh, and that's a minority statement there, really, uh, I think that there are firewalls, if you will, or failed safes in place from the other side that keep things from going totally off the rails. And I think that, you know, a lot of people say, well, uh, these psychic powers are real and these manifestations and things are real. Why can't we develop them more easily and more quickly? Well, I think there are, are firewalls in place on the other side, because again, going back to natural human nature, uh, one of my best friends, super intelligent, uh, super experienced in, in life in, in many deep areas and just a wonderful, rational, thoughtful, insightful human being to talk to. The first time I rode with him somewhere in his car, he yelled so loud at somebody with road rage that I nearly jumped out of the car seat. It was like, what in God's name? <laughs> I didn't even recognize him, you know? And so the point being that if we could take this cloud busting ability and at will use it against somebody that cut us off in a lane of traffic, our some people's response would be why USOB zap and blow them up or cause their car to crash or cause them to die or whatever. So I think in all realistic uh, possibility that there are these firewalls on the other side that kind of test and monitor our development and say, okay, let's, let's give this person this and see what they do with it. And that's why, you know, the, the mystics, the monks, the, the priest, all these people, they miss it. What they're trying to do is transcend and we shouldn't transcend. What we should do is involve. We should involve ourselves. And in overcoming uh, the nature, the base nature of ourselves, we don't run from it. 
or try and escape from it or sit and meditate all day long or go in a monastery, that doesn't do anybody any good. You lean, in, you lean into it. What we need to do is, is suppress it and accept these gifts and develop these gifts while we suppress that and practice them in a practical way in the world. Let's develop better healing. Let's develop better methods, methods of understanding and peace. Let's develop better communications. Let's develop a better uh, wholeness and well-being for everybody on this planet. But to do that, you have to become involved with this planet. And you have to do that in a physical okay. way. You have to channel all that spirituality and make it practical, make it real, make it worthwhile. Got you. Got you. Well, sir, I would like to thank you so very kindly for coming on the show. But oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure to meet you guys. I've enjoyed it greatly. We'll do it again down the road. Absolutely. But before you take off, could you very kindly tell everyone uh, about your two books that you've written uh, very uh, that I'm extremely impressed with and where you could be found as well for uh, for your your work and all of this? Yeah, if anybody wants to, to get a reading, find out more about me, they can go to johnrussell.net. And for the books, you can go to writingwithghost.net or anockintheattic.net, and it'll tell you about the books. They're available online on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, a whole lot of uh, little uh, small mom-and-pop stores. And uh, you're, you're not going to have read anything like them, no matter how many paranormal books you've read, I can guarantee you. I, I, I concur. I will say to the audience before we wrap this up, I did not get a chance to read all of uh, Mr. Russell's books, but um, I've been dare I say, extensively sifting through them. And compared to other texts I've I've read before, uh, what Mr. Russell has written is truly a resonating uh, set of, uh, dare I say, like, I mean, experiences, uh, you name it, because he does not, if I could say, sir, you do not approach it in the sense of this is how it is, this is how it must be, but rather you encourage people to pursue their own journey. And, and right. then afterwards, people will then realize within themselves on their own, they, we all end up back at that, that source, if you will. But there's right. just, everyone's got their own path, uh, exclusive, unique path of getting to the source. That's it, that's it. Thank you so much, sir. Guys, I've enjoyed it. It's been great meeting you. This has been fun and we'll definitely do it again. <laughs>